We have a weird homicide. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite. The police released their only suspect in the mass murder of film star Sharon Tate and four others. Late last night, another bizarre murder in Los Angeles, the second in two days. The owner of a small supermarket chain found in his home, his head covered by a white hood, a meat fork stuck in his chest. His wife, 38-year-old Mrs. Lino LaBianca, found in the bedroom dead, her back brutally cut by a whip. He's inside, two bodies outside. They came and went, and the number varied from 20 to 30. Police said they were a pseudo-religious cult. People who worked on the ranch said they were heavy users of drugs. Were lurid. The movie actress was Sharon Tate, 26. The others were a male hairdresser, the heiress to a coffee fortune, a writer, and a boy just out of high school. A wandering band of members of a so-called religious cult with a leader they called Jesus has had three of its followers arrested in the investigation of the murder of Sharon Tate and six others. Those arrested are two women and one man, and the Los Angeles police said they would ask murder indictments against several others. Five women are being held as material witnesses. They called themselves the family. Los Angeles has had another multiple murder. Last night, a middle-aged couple was stabbed to death in a case that has striking similarities to the mass murder Saturday of actress Sharon Tate and four friends. We're taking dolls and stealing cars, and just, they just sit around all day in peace, and that's about it. And they went around collecting garbage and had that for dinner and went to the store once in a while, and that was about it. They just left and got loaded. People who lived with Manson on the ranch and in the desert denied that they were a violent group. They called themselves the family. best-selling author Ian Tott, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our 10th look at Charles Manson and his family. Before we dive into this week's episode, of course, I have our normal show notes and plugs. If you would like to follow me on any form of social media, just search for Ian Totten, author, The Death Cast, or Corpse Creek Publishing. If you're interested in signing up for the show's mailing list you can go to corpsecreekpublishing.com click on the sign up button even if you're not interested in signing up for the mailing list well at corpse creek publishing you can drop me a line let me know what it is you think of the show ask questions and suggest show topics well there too if you are so inclined and you want to help with the production of this show or just give me a tip for a job well done you can click on the donate button buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes no amount is too small and of course no amount is too large if you 
really enjoy the show, there's a couple of ways you can help out. Again, if you are so inclined, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. Sign up to become a Patreon member for as little as $2 a month. You can help offset the cost of producing this show, as well as get access to exclusive content. The last way that you can help is to go to your favorite podcast platform, click on the subscribe button. If they allow it, leave a five-star review. If you leave a five-star review, I will read it out on air. Then go and share it on social media. Let your friends know that you are a fan of this show. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back and relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, Manson and his followers had been arrested in death valley up at the barker ranch and we had gotten to the point where susan atkins began confessing to her cellmates and was eventually moved to the susan brandt institute we're gonna back up a little bit here just for a few moments to go over what was going on with roman polanski during this period of time uh specifically right after the murders, after he returned to the United States. As we discussed in other episodes, there were stories about Polanski going back and retrieving all of the various films that he and Sharon had made concerning orgies and that sort of thing, as well as videos that Roman had made of himself and other women who were not Sharon. But there's more to that particular side of the story in that Polanski actually began doing his own investigation into the murders. There have been a number of reasons given as to why Roman Polanski might have begun his own investigation. Some people have speculated that he'd had prior knowledge of the murders before they were committed, while others have said that he didn't wholly trust the LAPD and was nervous about what they might discover should they begin to poke into he and Sharon's personal lives. The prevailing theory, however, is that Polanski was certain that individual who was responsible for the murder was somebody that was known to them, whether it was somebody in Hollywood who held a grudge against them or somebody who had been involved in one of Polanski's private films, or possibly even someone who they had purchased narcotics from in the past. He wasn't certain, although he did believe that the person was somebody that again that they knew not long after starting his investigation Polanski began contacting various people that the two of them knew and basically putting it to them that he thought that they were responsible for the murders obviously all of these individuals denied having anything to do with it. 
One of the names you will come across quite often is that of Bruce Lee, although I doubt that Polanski seriously suspected Lee of having been involved. The main name that is often associated with Polanski's investigation is one that you see in many, many different seedy transactions and stories from this period of time, and that is Papa John Phillips. And it's not without reason that Polanski suspected Phillips of possibly being involved in his wife's murder. In fact, even a cursory glance at the man's life and background will show you that he was involved in some really awful and seedy things. And if you further look into his life just beyond the, you know, the surface, and you'll find accusations that he was involved in Satanism and heavy narcotics dealing within Los Angeles. There are stories, although to the best of my knowledge, none of them have ever been proven, that he was involved in prostitution, murder-for-hire plots, uh, beating of women, even his own daughter came out in the late 90s, early 2000s, and stated that she had been engaged in an incestuous relationship with her father for something like, you know, 10 years or so. Just because it's Hollywood, and again, it was John Phillips, people kind of blinked about it. It was in the news for a week or two, and then it was brushed under the rug. I'm not stating that any of this stuff is true, but it shows you the moral character that most people held him in, that this kind of thing could be said about him as well as so much more, and nobody really batted an eye over it. As the story goes, Polanski uh, showed up at Philip's house with a gun and demanded to know why he had killed his wife. And supposedly, uh, Phillips backpedaled and informed him he had had nothing to do with it. And after some persuasion, Polanski believed him and left. But it does also show you how, despite the fact that, according to really everyone who knew them, their marriage was going through a rather rocky spell, Polanski did hold his wife in high regard, despite the fact, again, that, you know, he demeaned and belittled her by all accounts I have read and was fairly domineering inside of their relationship. Her murder really did shatter him, and it's been speculated that after her murder, he really did begin to spiral down into, you know, the deepest depths of depravity, and we will get to that later, possibly this episode, although I cannot say for certain. While all of this is going on, Polanski's going around brandishing guns at people and demanding to know why they killed his wife, you know, really turning over stones, trying to discover who it is in their circle who might be responsible those in Hollywood reacted to both 
Sharon Tate's murder and the murder of the LaBiancas in a most unusual manner for celebrities. This was fueled partially by the press's incessant reporting on the slayings. Celebrities really began to panic and believe that they were being targeted as a group. There was a spike in gun sales and home security systems, bodyguards, dogs, you name it. The airheads in Hollywood really believed that someone cared enough and hated them enough that they were going to just begin targeting all of them as opposed to, you know, reality that Tate just happened to be in the wrong house at the wrong time. I think, though, that does give you an idea of how self-absorbed celebrities were even back in the 1960s, that they all thought that they might be the next target of this nameless killer. Of course, as I said, this, you know, insecurity and frenzy was only fed by the local media who made it a point to almost daily recount gruesome aspects and speculations as to the, you know, the people who might have done it and the reasons behind the crimes. There was further fallout from the murders, however, as the people in Hollywood, the celebrities, already a paranoid lot, became more paranoid and began to suspect that there was a possibility that the police were going to start raiding and cracking down on them and their drug culture. There are stories of some fairly big stars of the time flushing thousands of dollars of narcotics down their toilets in an effort to, you know, stay away one step ahead of the police as the police were questioning everybody trying to discern how it was that Sharon Tate and company had been targeted and no one else had been. The celebrities felt that the police would, you know, link the crimes to drugs and or would discover that they had drugs in their homes, and as a result of this, they would end up getting arrested and their careers would be destroyed. That's the mindset of Hollywood, though. I, really, they do all sorts of awful and debaucherous stuff, and in this day and age, most of us know about this stuff and ignore it because, well, they really don't matter, but they still have this mentality of they are above all of those earthly things. Back in the 1960s, though, and prior to that, for a celebrity to get ca caught with narcotics really would have been a career-ending misstep. So on that level, at least, their paranoia was well-founded. As discussed last episode, some members of the Manson family had fled the area following the murders. The most notable of these are the 
Patricia Krenwinkel after Susan Atkins confirmed to her cellmates that she had been involved in the Sharon Tate murders, the police turned their attention to her and began interviewing her. Atkins really had no qualms discussing with police her participation in these crimes, and this can be chalked up to really just how messed up her mind was from continuous drug usage. And it was from Atkins that the police learned of the other participants in the Tate murders. Again, you gotta remember, this is September, October, November of 1969. At this point, they still had not connected the Tate crimes to the LaBianca murders, but they also only knew that they had this strung-out girl who was singing like a canary to anybody who was listening about how she had been involved with the murders. On December 1st of 1969, the Los Angeles Police Department issued warrants for the arrests of Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian for their roles in the Sharon Tate murders. Of note is the fact that Susan Atkins and Charles Manson were not mentioned in either of these warrants. Eventually, Tex Watson and Patricia Cranwinkle would be arrested, with Watson being arrested in McKinney, Texas, and Cromwinkle being apprehended in Mobile, Alabama. Linda Kasabian is the only one who voluntarily surrendered herself. Linda surrendered on December 2nd in Concord, New Hampshire. After this, a string of things happened. Police were able to link both Tex Watson and Patricia Krenwinkel to the Tate murder scene using their fingerprints. Remember, they got numerous sets of prints at the scene, although they were not able to rule out all of these sets initially as the suspect's fingerprints were not in any database that was available to them. Gaining this information, the police realized that, yes, indeed, this young woman who we have in jail, Susan Atkins, is telling the truth concerning her knowledge of these crimes. Another piece of evidence which had fallen into the police's lap on September 1st was then definitively linked to the crimes. That is the 22 caliber high standard bunk line special revolver that Tex Watson had used on the night of the murders and which had been broken during the murder of Frykowski. You'll remember after they left the crime scene, the killers got rid of their 
soiled clothing as well as the murder weapons. Watson had thrown the gun over the edge of an embankment where it had ended up in the backyard of a family. A young boy by the name of Stephen Weiss, who was 10 years old, found the gun and brought it to his father, who then turned around and gave it to the LAPD. One interesting piece of information concerning this gun is that the Los Angeles Police Department, in fact, forgot that they had the gun question in their custody and that Weiss's father actually had to contact the LAPD and remind them that his son had found this weapon, after which it was connected to the crimes via ballistic tests. While Susan Atkins was talking to the LAPD, she was also talking to her lawyer. And again, this goes to show you just how far strung out she was. She allowed her lawyer to go and give interviews on her behalf to various news agencies in Los Angeles. One of which appeared in the Los Angeles Times. This was based directly off of Atkins' recounting of the crime. Further, an ABC television crew located the bloody clothing that had been discarded by the murderers on the night of the slaying. This all came from Atkins allowing her lawyer to talk to the police. Just throwing this out there, it's my belief, had Atkins had full control of her facilities at this period of time, it's very, very doubtful that Manson and any of his followers ever would have been connected to, much less tried and convicted of the murderers. They were that far off until Susan Atkins began talking to her cellmates. With the news of the recovery of these items and the fact that the LAPD had a witness who was now talking, it was really at this point that the Tate murders, as they were then known, took hold of the public consciousness Across the whole United States, as they were depicted as deranged hippie killers, drugged out hippie killers, all sorts of sensationalistic things, which, as you all know, the media loves this type of stuff. This was the kind of story they couldn't have written if they tried, and it's only going to get worse the further into this story that we get because Manson and his followers are going to put on the show of a lifetime once this thing gets to trial. And I'm gonna try and dig up some sound bites for the next episode. But really, the stuff that's going to happen this wasn't a trial, it was a three-ring circus with elephants and guys on motorcycles jumping through flaming hoops. 
you have a prosecutor who is constantly mugging for the camera and trying to build himself up as this super savior of the city. Manson's followers, those who are not incarcerated, putting on displays and protests for the cameras on a daily basis. Lawyers going missing and turning up dead. You name it, it happened. And I know people say the O.J. Simpson trial was the trial of the century. No, this right here was the trial of the century. In my personal opinion, there has been no bigger trial worldwide or in America than the Manson murder trials, which would come in the early 1970s. We are getting a hair ahead of ourselves. Going back to the LaBianca crimes, remember, you had two separate entities investigating these crimes. You had the Los Angeles Police Department, as well as, I believe, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, looking into these murders. At least as early as October 1st, the LaBianca team began looking at Charles Manson as a possible suspect in the murders of the LaBiancas. We will get back into the reasons why this is in just a moment. For me in time, best-selling author of the House of Silver Dolls, the Blood Gods Trilogy, Maggie, a book which New York Times best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called a classic detective story, well-crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie, the name was burned into Lieutenant Carl Jablonski's mind like a brand and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie, who was she and why did no one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers, quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie, Carl felt haunted by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told them of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie. Hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, available 11, 30, 2021, in paperback and hardcover. Ebook pre-orders are now available at Amazon.com. Only from Corpse Creek Publishing. You have been warned. In 
in the second homicide report for the Labion, because this was, you know, the progress report, it's stated, investigators contacted Los Angeles County Sheriff's Homicide Bureau requesting information on murders that were similar to the LaBianca murder. Deputy Charles Gunther informed investigators that he and his partner, Sergeant Whitley, were presently investigating a homicide that occurred at 964 North Old Topanga Canyon Road, Topanga, on 725-2669. The victim, Gary Hinman, lived alone at the above location. In that case, the words political piggy were written on the wall of the victim's residence in his own blood. Further, it states there are two suspects presently in the sheriff's custody for this murder. The first, Robert Kennedy Fusilil, male Caucasian, 21-year-old, and the second suspect, Susan Denise Atkins, female Caucasian, 21-year-old, is presently being held in Inyo County on another charge. A hold has been placed on her for murder by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. A quick correction before the break, I had said that the LAPD were the ones who were handling the LaBianca murders. I was mistaken there. It's the uh, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Forgive me that there's so much information in this case that even with notes at times, it's difficult to jumble up who said what and what organization was handling what particular investigation. reason that I'm pointing this out is it was really the sheriff's department who tied these two crimes together. Not as Bagliosi, the prosecutor, would later claim the LAPD. You gotta understand, Bagliosi was an individual with a monstrous ego who could never be proven wrong, and he was very litigious. And he wanted for his guys to take credit for everything, such as the nature of the game, especially out in Los Angeles County. Anyways, back into the progress report from the Sheriff's Department. Remember, this is from around October 1st of 1969. The Sheriff's Crime Lab has established that the victim's blood was used to write the words on Hinman's wall. Investigators believe it is noteworthy that this murder, which occurred on July 26, 1969, was followed by two other murders, to wit, Tate on August 8, 1969, and LaBianca on August 10, 1969. All three murders have the unique characteristic of the suspect using the victim's blood to write on the wall. This characteristic takes on a greater significance in that each instance the words make reference to Pig in one form or another. Other similarities between the Hinman and LaBianca murders were the placing of a pillow over the victim's face. Although Busileo was in custody at the time of the LaBianca murders, Atkins had not yet been apprehended. I have read a number of different theories as to how it is that the sheriff's department came to the knowledge of 
Susan Atkins. Remember, at this period of time, she was in custody of the LAPD. The prevailing and most logical theory on this is that there was somebody inside of the LEPD who was leaking information not only to the press but also to the sheriff's office and that this individual may have informed friends working on the LaBianca crimes that they had somebody in lockup who was taking claim for the murders of Sharon Tate. Moving on in the case, Atkins eventually agreed to testify for the prosecution in exchange for the state of California not seeking the death penalty against her. This is important as Atkins was not granted immunity for her crime, something that I find fairly odd because most times when a defendant is going to testify against other defendants or give testimony at a grand jury hearing, they will be given immunity for their crimes. I really think that this is a Atkins mental state at the time due to years of heavy narcotics use as well as Vincent Bagliosi's uh, massacations and manipulations of her. She was asked, she being Atkins, if she were willing to testify knowing that she was not being given immunity and may be prosecuted for this, Atkins replied, I understand this and my life doesn't mean that much to me. I just want to see what is taken care of. During her testimony, Atkins claimed to have stabbed Frykowski in the legs and held Tate down while Watson stabbed her. She also stated that as she held Tate and Tate wiggled and squirmed, begging to be allowed to give birth to her child, that she, Atkins, replied, woman, I have no mercy for you. Atkins clarified that her words were meant to reassure herself and not uh, directed at Tate. During her questioning by the grand jury, Atkins was asked whether or not she had told both one or both of her cellmates that during the murder she had dipped her finger into Sharon Tate's blood and tasted it. This was something that both of Atkins' cellmates swore up and down they had been told by the young woman. Atkins, for her part, denied having ever stated this or having done it. This is an important part right here of the story because this is not the first, nor will it be the last time that Susan Atkins flip-flops concerning what actually took place with these crimes. As you're going to see while we when we go forward, she'll give a statement and then turn around and either deny or completely change that statement later on. 
And this goes on not only during the trials, but for years afterwards. She'll make a statement, then retract it, and or change it. Even when she put out her autobiography from prison, she made statements inside of it that she would later recant and say didn't happen or she was mistaken over. So I just want you to keep that in mind concerning Susan Atkins. She is an unreliable witness at best. Atkins gave some pretty horrific testimony to the grand jury while she was being questioned. Things that only someone who was on site for the crimes could know. And I have read some descriptions of people who were impaneled for the grand jury becoming not physically ill, but visibly upset by the things that Susan Atkins was stating. After this, Atkins began giving interviews with various news media outlets, which you can find online, and it's apparent while you're watching them that she is most definitely not in her right frame of mind. Although, eventually, Atkins would recant her testimony to the grand jury, she would also refuse to help the prosecution. I suspect that her mind had begun to clear by this point in time. Also, too, she was being around members of the family, and I'm sure many of them said to her, hey, you're not only not helping your own case, you're also hurting Charlie's case. Although later Atkins would state that the reason she had done this was because members of Manson's family had approached her and let her know that it would be best for both herself and her child if she refused to cooperate with the police. I can't say that didn't happen, although again, Atkins is a tricky figure. She was a known liar. I would imagine more than anything that Manson got a bug in her ear and started spinning his same old webs to her, and that old allegiance came back. Interesting note concerning her grand jury testimony is that Vince Bogliosi, who was the prosecutor, believed until his dying day that Atkins' testimony was essentially truthful. Myself, given all of the different accounts that Atkins gave over the years, as well as accounts by other members of the kill team, particularly Tex Watson, I don't really know if I buy Atkins' account of what happened that evening, wherein she stated that she held her down and helped to stab Frykowski. Later, she would state that she, in fact, herself was stabbing Sharon Tate and that Watson participated in the murder. Watson 
would later come out and state that Atkins really hadn't done anything and that it was he himself who had murdered Sharon. This was backed up by Susan later in the 70s when she gave an interview and corroborated what it was that Watson had said. So again, if you're following this, first she says she was involved with it, then she says she wasn't, then maybe she was involved with to it to an extent, then she wasn't, then Watson says she wasn't. There's a lot of contradictory statements being given by Susan Atkins at this period of time and throughout the rest of her time on this planet. In any event, because of all this, the main participants in the murders would eventually be charged with the crime of murder, and their trial began in the spring of 1970. On June 15th of 1970, Charles Manson, Patricia Cronwinkle, Leslie Van Houten, and Susan Atkins went on trial. You'll notice that Tex Watson was not included in this trial. That was because during this period of time, he was still in Texas and was fighting extradition back to California. While Linda Kasabian was offered and accepted legal immunity for her testimony during the trials. At the start of the trial, Manson was granted the right to represent himself. However, this was quickly changed when it became apparent to the judge and everyone else in the courtroom that Manson was an uncontrollable element. The judge went so far as to issue a gag order against Manson, claiming that his behavior was outlandish and nonsensical. Manson ended up getting the judge changed out when he filed an affidavit of prejudice against the original trial judge, William Keene. The judge was replaced with Charles Older. During this period of time, Manson's followers began to show up at the courthouse. You can find video and still photography of them out there sitting on the sidewalk, singing songs and holding protests for Manson and the other girls' incarceration. And it quickly became apparent to everyone that Manson had an extreme degree of control over these girls. On Friday, July 24th, which was the first day of testimony, Manson appeared in court with a X carved into a, his forehead before issuing a statement during which he stated that he was considered inaccurate and inadequate to speak or defend himself, and that the X represented him Xing himself from the establishment's world. Understand, this X in his forehead was actually carved into the flesh, and it wasn't just Manson that did this. All of his co-defendants, as well as 
His followers on the outside world soon followed suit. The prosecution argued during the trial that Manson's main motivation for the murders was the aforementioned helter-skelter. I'm going to give the briefest of brief overviews of helter-skelter. Basically, the prosecution, as led by Vince Bagliosi, contended that Manson believed and convinced his followers that there was a race war coming between the blacks and the whites in the United States and that this race war would either wipe out all life in the United States or wipe out all life on the planet itself. Bagliosi contended that Manson had orchestrated these murders in order to speed up this coming race war as Manson and his followers believed that he was a prophet and that they would be the only whites who would survive the fallout from this weight race war whether it was some kind of nuclear holocaust or whether it was that the violence just would be so severe that no non-white people would survive which is why they had written the words helter skelter and pig and political pity piggy etc etc on the walls in blood in an effort to try and make the police believe that the black panthers or another revolutionary black organization was behind these crimes that the one of that this organization was targeting well-to-do white people this in an effort to further inflame the tension between the two races and possibly lead to either the LAPD or the federal government cracking down on these organizations, thus sparking off the coming race war. Bagliosi further contended that Manson and his followers following these murders had fled to Death Valley in an attempt to find a tunnel that was hidden, this tunnel apparently would lead Manson and his followers beneath the Earth's surface where they could wait out the coming apocalypse, after which Manson and his followers would reemerge to take control of the planet. There are two versions I have heard of this particular part of the story. One is that Manson and his followers would reemerge and then subjugate the blacks to their will as they were, quote-unquote, superior to them. The other version is that Manson and his followers would reemerge and then lay waste to any survivors, at which point Manson and his followers would repopulate the Earth in their own image. If I sound skeptical about this, it's because I am. The main witness that testified to this particular theory was Paul Watkins, who was an ex-member of the family. He stated that Manson had gotten the idea from Helter Skelter after listening to the Beatles' Abbey Road album and then further the 
White album that Manson would listen to these albums on pretty much nonstop rotation while he and members of the family dropped LSD. According to Watkins, Manson believed that the Beatles were talking to him and were sending him messages through songs on the album. One song being the aforementioned Helter Skelter, another song being Revolution Number no. 9. Here's the reason I have a problem with this besides the fact that members of Manson's family discounted it themselves at various points over the years. In the book Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s, there is mounds of evidence presented that testimony was suppressed by the prosecution during this trial. You're probably thinking, uh, that's bullshit, I've heard the frickin' Manson story a hundred times, there is no testimony that, yes, yes there was. If you go out and get this book, I'm not getting into the nitty gritty of it, but the author was able to find in police files and through interviews numerous people who knew Manson and his followers during this time as well as new members of the prosecution and all of them paint a much different picture concerning the crimes than was painted at trial. Yes, this is the book that puts forth the evidence that Manson may have been a subject of the CIA's MK Ultra project which historically was known during the period of Manson's incarceration in the 1950s and the 1960s to be experimenting on prisoners, most notably Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. But it is telling that the lead prosecutor, who was media-hungry, it's the only way I can think to put it, was described as very egotistical, self-centered, and litigious came up with this theory for what was going to be the trial of the century, and he was going to be the star and ringmaster of the entire thing. I'm not saying that Manson and his cohorts were not guilty of these crimes. What I'm saying is the idea that they believed there was be this coming race war and that they were going to survive it is complete bullshit that was brought about by one ex-disgruntled member of the family and a prosecutor who was looking to make a name for themselves and this prosecutor did end up making a name for himself. In fact, the book that he wrote following this case, which in and of itself should have been rounds to throw out the convictions, the fact that he was able to make money off the case while still working as a prosecutor. This book is still, to this day, the number one best-selling true crime book of all time. Further should be noted that this particular prosecutor, who was known to be very litigious and very guarded about the Manson case, 
when the author for the book Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA and the Secret History of the 1960s, was working on this case and actually met with this prosecutor, he was told in no uncertain terms that if you make me look bad inside of this book or refute the theory that I have put forward, I will sue you into oblivion. The author took this to heart so much so that he, in fact, waited until the lead prosecutor passed away before even attempting to publish the book. I think that says a lot about that individual and also says a lot about this case. There's a lot of unknowns in this case. The idea that Manson believed that he and his followers were going to be the only white survivors of a coming race war is laughably bad and could only have happened in Hollywood if a prosecutor anywhere else in the country had attempted to push this theory at a criminal trial. I have to believe that the judge would have thrown the case out because other than Paul Watkins and select witnesses who were vetted fairly heavily by the prosecution, no one else has ever backed up that theory. Now that my rant against Helter Skelter is over, the trial is continuing on and the shenanigans of Manson and his followers are just getting started. We are going to leave off our case here for this week and return to it next week where hopefully we will be wrapping up the Charles Manson family saga. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. I apologize for any sound issues you may have experienced while listening to it as my microphone decided to take a shit towards the end of recording, so I had to find other means to finish this episode. Until next week, The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Please remember to like and subscribe wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts. Leave a five-star review. Follow me on social media under Ian Tottenauther, The Death Cast, or Corpse Creek Publishing. Until next time, stay morbid.